Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Jonah was an exceedingly now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When, so when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. The word of the Lord. This morning, so glad that you've joined us. And if this happens to be your first Sunday with us, I want to extend to you a very special welcome and let you know that one of the things that uh, I hope you'll come to discover about our church is that we value being relationally connected. And uh, as an extension of that, after the service is over, if you go through those double doors, you'll find yourself in this large open area that we call our coffee bar. We'll serve some refreshments. We'd love it if you'd hang around so we would have the opportunity to get to know you. I'll make my way to the vicinity of the Welcome Center. I would love to meet you. I'll also mention that we are going to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of the message. And so uh, if you happen to miss one of these little individual communion kits on your way in, feel free to to slip out and go grab one of those. You'll find them by the doors. Now, we are in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Jonah. It's a short book. It's only four chapters long. And we saw from the very opening verses that a little bit of suspense was created. We as readers have been left wondering what's going to happen to this wayward prophet and then what's going to happen to the people of Nineveh, this great city and last week in chapters 2, we saw what happened to, to the wayward prophet. We, we learned the fate of Jonah. And this week in chapter 3, we're going to discover what happens to the people living in the great city of Nineveh. So as we noted previously, there's some symmetry. There's some literary pairing that goes on between chapter 1 and chapter 3. The start of chapter 3 is almost identical to the start of chapter 1. So we'll start by looking now at chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, I'm just guessing here that if you or I were God, chapter 3 would look a little bit different. I, I mean, let, let's just envision with me for a moment that the... 
You've got a direct report who's under you, and you're working on this big project, super important, and you hand this direct report uh, a, a component of that project. And then this individual, they don't respond to your emails. They don't respond to your phone calls. Uh, come to find out, you know what they did? They set up a rule on Microsoft Outlook where all of your, your emails went directly to their junk folder. Yeah. I mean, this individual has, has been unresponsive, they've been irresponsible, they've done exactly the opposite of what you've asked them to do. And then this person, uh, you know, they find themselves in a pickle on Friday night, and, and, and they think to call you from the Winston-Salem police station and ask you to come bail them out. Now, maybe you being the gracious person that you are, you'd, you'd go down there and, and post bail. But let me ask you this. It's Monday morning, you're back at work. That big project is due in a couple weeks. Are you going to give that individual the exact same assignment? Are you going to give them a, a critical role in the project? I mean, it, it's one thing to forgive someone, right? But it's another to reinstate them. I mean, if you're the head coach and you've got this player on your team that's been mouthy to you, uh, been a little chippy, uh, ha hasn't been following the instructions that you've given them. I mean, may maybe if this person demonstrates some remorse, you, you, you let them dress out for the game and maybe you sub them in second half, but are you going to start them still? L let's see how God deals with Jonah. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, and you know what? It contains the same commission that Jonah received the first time. You might think God would have taken note of Jonah's having run away and he would have dialed back the scope of his responsibility. He would have scaled it accordingly. But what we see is God doesn't simply forgive Jonah. He restores him to his full calling. And what I want you to know is this, is, this isn't something God just makes this one-time exception for Jonah. God has a track record of doing this. So we think about Abraham. He received the call from God to leave the land of Ur and go to the promised land. He stops halfway. Guess what happens? The word of God comes to him a second time, moving him forward, urging him to go to the promised land. We think of Moses, who uh, God called to deliver the, the Israelites out of Egypt and Moses begins by trying to take matters into his own hands, and that doesn't go so well. But guess what? The Word of God comes to Moses a second time, and he gets that commission again. Or we think of the Apostle Peter, who, who denies Jesus three times, and yet Jesus comes and he reinstates him, and he makes him a leader of the early church. And I want you to know that God wants to do the same thing with us. I, I don't know what your past entails, but we, we agreed last week that there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. Well, we, we can kind of look in the rearview mirror of our life, and we can see those times where instead of being obedient, we were just like Jonah, and we got on the ship to Tarshish. And, and what I want you to know is what God doesn't do with Jonah is he doesn't say, oh, man, look, that guy just blew it. Time to, time to downgrade Jonah's life to like plan B or plan C because 
there's no way this guy's living up to his full ministry potential. He's not going to fulfill the original purpose for which I created him. God doesn't do that. He gives him the exact same commission. And I, I think sometimes we can allow the, the, the whispers of the enemy to get in our head and we can say things like, oh, you know, God could never use me because of all, all the just the junk in my past. Or, or God could never use me because of just the way that my witness, my testimony in the community has been so compromised by these mistakes that I've made. I would just say, don't assume that God doesn't want to use you because of mistakes in your past. Because if you, if, if you assume that, really what you're telling God is that he can't use you. And if you're telling that to God, really what you're doing is you're, you're putting a ceiling on his power. And, and could it be that God would want to use people like Jonah and me and you because it has a way of revealing his power and not ours when he works through us. Now, I, I want us to see what happens after Jonah receives the word of the Lord a second time. We're going to look at verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And what's the next word? So... So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now we're going to contrast this with chapter 1. So chapter 1, very similar. It's going to show up here any minute. <laughs> chapter, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, but what's that word? But, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. This is the same thing with us. The word of God comes to us and we've got two options. We can obey or we can disobey. Sometimes the word of the Lord comes to us and we're just like Jonah in chapter one, aren't we? But, 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 and, you know, we come up with reasons. We come up with rationale. We, we come up with some excuses for why we can't obey or why we can't obey fully. And we head down the downward spiral or we could be like Jonah in chapter 3, and we can choose to obey. And, and when we choose that option, what we discover is that we have the opportunity to be used by God to accomplish his purposes. So, we're going to continue reading now. We, we see that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go out into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So we're not exactly sure what's meant by three days' journey in length. Uh, some people say that, well, what this means is within the, the parameters of this walled city, it would have taken three days, really, for Jonah to, to go throughout it, uh, preaching at the various corners, the intersections, giving everyone in the city an opportunity to hear the message. Or, or it may mean that not only was Jonah's charge to go to the actual walled city itself, but uh, think of it as the, 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 uh, the outlying villages, the suburbs, if you will, greater Nineveh, that, that it was so big that it would take in three days to cover all of that. And, uh, and, and that was Jonah's charge, to preach to this entire area. I'm, I'm inclined to think it's, it's the latter, but, but whatever the case, we see that Jonah did not delay in being obedient to what God had commanded. Uh, 
And the gist of Jonah's message is summarized in this short statement, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, in all likelihood, Jonah just didn't stand there on the corner and say the same thing over and over again. This is simply a concise summary of his message. And, and the verb overturn is one of the many word plays in this book. So overturned is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's used in, in this way in a couple places, but one of these is Genesis 19.25, which says, And he, that's God, overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew around. However, in a few instances, the verb can also have this connotation of to turn around or to transform. And, and we see this, for example, in 1 Kings 22.34, where the king of Israel tells the driver of his chariot to turn around and carry me out of battle, for I am wounded. And what we come to discover here is that although Nineveh is not overturned like we were originally led to believe, it's not overturned like Sodom and Gomorrah, this city nevertheless experiences a turnaround, a transformation. And I say this as a surprise to us because as Pastor Sonny mentioned back in week one, the Assyrians were a group of people that were known for their cruelty. Uh, through sources outside the Bible, his, historians have uh, uncovered many of the, just the horrific practices of these people. They, they burn people alive. They skin people alive. They would cut off appendages. Uh, they would cut off facial features of their enemies. There's accounts of them taking uh, uh, skulls and hanging them in the trees uh, around town. There, there's accounts of them uh, piling up heads in a pyramid out, outside the gate of a city. And yet Jonah enters this wicked city and a great revival breaks out. I mean, th this is a surprise to us as the readers. How in the world does this happen? How does revival break out in a place like Nineveh? Well, to be clear, revival isn't something that we as, as human beings can engineer. But when we look at what happened in Nineveh, and we think of some other revivals that have happened in human history. We think of what happened with the Great Awakening in our own country in the 18th century. We think of the Scottish revivals that happened in the mid-19th century. We think of the Welsh revivals that happened in the early 20th century. We can see that there are some patterns that emerged. And first, what I want us to see is what God's messenger does when revival happens. Then I want us to see what God does and then finally, we'll see what the people of Nineveh do. So what does Jonah do in all this? What does God's messenger do? I want you to see that, that Jonah doesn't do anything extraordinary. I mean, really, all Jonah does is he's obedient. Uh, specifically, he's obedient in two ways. He goes to where God tells him to go, and then he says what God tells him to say. That's all he does. So, so the first command, arise, go. Two verbs, back to back. And when we see that in the Hebrew, uh, the first verb, it functions more as an adverb, and it's the second verb that really retains the, the full verbal force. So what's going on here is essentially God saying, get up and go. There's some urgency to the command. And for those of us who are Christians, this command to, to go, 
Does it remind us of anything else we've read in Scripture? Anybody? Oh, yeah, the Great Commission. That's right. This, this reminds us of what Jesus told his disciples right before he ascended into heaven. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. And so if, if you are a follower of Jesus, those are your marching orders. That's the mission. Go and make disciples of all nations. And for some of us, being obedient to that commission means that we should go across the street and talk to a neighbor. But for others, I believe God might be calling you to arise and to leave this area and to go somewhere where there isn't a faithful gospel presence. Uh, several years ago, the leaders of our church got together and answered the question, what, what would God want us as a church to look like several years down the road, say the year 2025? If God were to have his way in us, how would the church look different? And we answered that question with this little one-page document we call our Vision 2025. You can find it on our website. You've probably heard Pastor David talk about it before. But I'll summarize it by saying this, that, that if, if God were to work in us what is pleasing to his sight, what we're envisioning would happen would be that there is deeper spiritual growth in all of our lives. And, and, and this, in turn, would express itself and concern for the spiritual well-being of others. A, a concern that would then manifest itself in our going out into the community, into the world to share Jesus. We said it like this. We said, if God were to make us into the church that he would want us to be in the year 2025, while 80% of River Oaks members serve locally in some way, dozens of others have been called to missions overseas. And I want to think about that last part, the overseas part, with you for a moment. Because I think we as a church, we, we can be commended for the way that we pray for and that we encourage uh, our, our missionaries the, who are currently serving overseas. I think we do a good job of that as a church. But I'm envisioning that God would want even more for us as a church. Because there are still great cities around the world, like Nineveh, that are full of people who haven't heard the good news of Jesus. They don't know, Jonah 2.10, that salvation is from the Lord. And the means by which God would want to reach them is just ordinary people like us going and sharing the word of God with them. And so what I'm asking, this is a big ask, but I, but I think this isn't really an ask for me, this is, this is an ask from Jesus is that if you consider yourself a follower of him, would you pray about going? Would, would, you, would you hold before him your life and say, God, uh, what does it look like for me to arise and go? W would you want me to be one of the dozens that would leave here and go proclaim your word in an area where there isn't a faithful gospel presence? And if God were to call you to go, I want you to know that, that we as a church, we would be so excited for you in that. We would, we would come along you, we would resource you, we would support you in that. I'm thinking some of you might feel called to go as, as traditional missionaries, but that isn't the only way that God might call you to arise and go. Uh, last year I was speaking with a couple in our neighborhood who had recently returned from overseas, 
they felt called to the mission field. And as they began to pray about that, the company that he worked for had an opening in Singapore. And, and they packed up and they moved halfway around the world, uh, not because it, you know, it sounded exotic and they wanted to feel like they were on an episode of International House Hunters on HGTV. They did it because they felt a call to share Jesus with the people of Singapore. I have another friend from, from seminary. His name is Patrick, and he had an engineering background prior to, to going to seminary. Uh, he worked for a company called Caterpillar. And after he graduated from seminary, he, he called up Caterpillar, his former employer, and he got a job in Jordan. Uh, not as a pastor or as a chaplain, but as an engineer. It, it, it just so happens uh, that working there, that uh, you know, they paid his bills for, for him to live over there. And then, and then as a result of the job that he had from nine to five, he had this opportunity to, to, to form relationships with people and to share Jesus. And, and what I want you to know is that there's probably some of you in this room that have some skills and talents that could be leveraged in another part of the world where maybe there isn't a faithful gospel presence. And I'm asking you to hold those before the Lord and, and just say, God, will you impress upon me what does arise and go look like for me? And then God's going to send you out somewhere. And whether it's across the office or whether it's a, across the world, what we need to do next is we need to do just what Jonah did. We need to share his word. We don't have to invent the content. So God tells Jonah to go to the great city and call out against it the message that I tell you. That's all we have to do because the power is in God's word. In 1 Corinthians 2.1, the apostle Paul writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. This thing doesn't hinge upon our rhetorical powers. And, and, there, and there's something to be said for the importance of good deeds. But, but notice with me that it's not Jonah's good deeds that spark revival in Nineveh. God, God doesn't tell Jonah to, to go to Nineveh and uh, live a really virtuous life. And then, you know, if necessary, you know, use words to share Jesus. God tells him very explicitly that he's going to need to use words. There's an actual message that needs to be conveyed. And, and I know that can feel a little intimidating sometimes, right? It's like, oh gosh, what am I going to say? Am I going to mess this up? And uh, I, I've never done something like that before. I, I, I get it. Um, but just you know, remember that, that, that our job isn't necessarily to have all the answers. We don't have to have a a degree in apologetics. We just have to be faithful in sharing what God's revealed. And if you're wondering, like, well, what in the world do I say? We have these bookmarks at our resource center that provide a really simple overview of God's plan of salvation. You, you don't even have to memorize these. You could just hold this out with someone and you, you could read these verses together and let God's word speak for itself. Our job isn't to convince anyone. Our job is simply to be faithful in sharing what God has made known. And I say that because as Jonah does this, as Jonah is obedient and going and proclaiming, we see that God performs a supernatural work. 
The, the reason that Jonah's message to the Ninevites is condensed into this short eight-word statement, really in the Hebrew it's only five words, is because the author is downplaying Jonah's ability as an orator. And, and, and even though there's nothing special about Jonah's preaching, verse 5 tells us this, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They don't believe Jonah. They believe God ultimately. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This comes as a bit of a surprise to us. This isn't exactly the, the reception and the response we were thinking this particular people were going to have to Jonah's message. How does this happen? Well, I'm reminded of uh, a quote I saw when I was at the Billy Graham Library. If you guys, anybody been to that place in Charlotte? If you haven't been, it is, it is worth a visit. But uh, somewhere hanging on the wall was this quote that I, that I went back and found. Billy Graham said this. He said, if I had the privilege of preaching the gospel in most of the countries of the world, and I have found that when I present the simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ with authority, with authority quoting from the very word of God, he takes that message and drives it supernaturally into the human heart. This is what we see going on in Nineveh. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring conviction in the hearts of the people. So there's this outward proclamation of the good news that Jonah delivers, and at the same time there's this inner proclamation. So, so, so Jonah is speaking uh, to the ears of the listeners, and at the same time, the Spirit of God is speaking to the hearts of those who are hearing. And Scripture tells us that, that repentance from sin is preceded by a conviction of sin. And Jesus tells us this in John 16, 8. He says that when He comes, that's the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So Jonah just shares God's word, and God takes his word, and through the work of the Spirit, he uses it to, to prick hearts. That's God's role in revival. Jonah doesn't do that. Jonah simply goes, and he proclaims, and then God begins to stir. And, and, and as the, the people are, are, are smitten with a sense of sin as a result of the, the work of the Spirit, we see how the Ninevites respond. Verse 6 the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Here we see that as a consequence of trusting God, the people of Nineveh, they declare a fast and they put on sackcloth. Uh, th this was a common means in the ancient world of, a, of expressing grief and humility and remorse. The, the, these are the hallmarks of true repentance. And 
By focusing on the response of the king in, in verse 6, we're, we're given a, a few more details that sort of add color to that, that general description we had in verse 5. We see that it really was true, that revival spread across the city and that it affected everyone from, from the least to the greatest. Here, here's the king. He stands up. He leaves his throne, right? He takes off his kingly garments and then he puts on sackcloth, which would have been this like coarse clothing that would have been made from goat's hair. This isn't comfortable stuff. And then he sits back down again, but this time he sits on the ground in ashes. We we talked last week about the heart posture that Jonah had when he approached God. We, We said it's important to approach God in humility and helplessness, and we see the king doing the exact same thing that Jonah did in chapter 2. And then in verse 8, we saw that royal summons to call out mightily to God. And this reminds us of Jonah 2, verse 2, where Jonah does the same thing. He calls out mightily to God. And, and we can sense the transformation of the heart that's taking place. The, the people of Nineveh, we see that they recognize the, their sin for what it is. And we know that when this happens, what it means is we don't try and justify our sin. We don't try and rationalize it. We own it for what it is. And we see the king says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. He's not trying to make excuses. He's acknowledging his sin for what he is, and there's genuine repentance. And just like with the Gentile sailors in chapter 1, we see with these Gentile Ninevites, they now revere God. And when God saw what they did, he had compassion on them. He relented. This isn't some like divine failing on God's part. What we see here is this is the heart of God revealed. 1 Timothy 2.4 tells us that God our Savior desires for all men to come to repentance and come to a knowledge of the truth. In the, in the same God that had compassion on the Ninevites wants to have compassion on people today. That's the heart of God. And as we think about how this might apply to our lives, I just say for those of us who are, who are Christians, this is how the passage challenged me this week. It challenged me with regards to sharing God's word with others, especially those who don't hear it. There was a time in my life where I, I did this with more intentionality and with more frequency. And through this passage, I feel like God's been telling me, like, hey, Andrew, what happened? And I just, I just say, as you, as you look at this passage, maybe, maybe what God's telling you is, look, Jonah didn't do anything fancy. And, and, I, and I used it. I used his obedience. And I think God would want to do the same thing with you. And you might say, well, I, I don't know. You, you, you don't know my past. Look, think about Jonah. That guy had some serious black marks on his spiritual resume. And God used it. God used him. The other thing we, we see here is that, you know, sometimes we can uh, have some preconceived notions about who's likely to repent and who isn't. And sometimes I can make the mistake of thinking, well, that, yeah, that, that, person, that, that person probably wouldn't be very receptive, so I don't need to worry about sharing with them. So the Ninevites were wicked people. They, they, they weren't exactly what, you know, an evangelist would have considered to be low-hanging fruit spiritually. 
And, and yet they, they did. And, and church history is full of unlikely conversions. And, and I hope that if we're really honest with ourselves, that we include ourselves in that category, that we recognize that, you're, you know, the reason that, that we're a Christian and maybe someone isn't isn't because anything special on our part. It's because we recognize that the grace of God was at work in our lives. And, uh, and it, if it were not for that, there, there we go, but for the grace of God. I, I think of um, a book I read a few years ago by Rosario Butterfield called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Uh, Rosario Butterfield was a tenured English professor at Syracuse University, and her, her specialty was, was queer theory. Uh, she was in a lesbian relationship, and she was in the middle of um, researching a book uh, that she was going to write on the religious right, and in her words here, their politics of hatred against people like me. And as kind of preparation, uh, she wrote an article in the local paper, and, and it was published. And uh, there was a pastor there in town that uh, read that article and wrote Rosaria a, a heartfelt response. And uh, Rosaria, she said she wanted to toss it, but she just kind of kept it there on her desk and Eventually, this letter led to an in-person meeting, which led to Rosaria reading the Bible for herself multiple times, and she wrestled with God for a season. And then eventually, she came to place her faith in Jesus. And regarding her conversion, she says she lost everything but the dog, uh, yet she gained eternal life in Christ. And uh, her most recent book, the gospel comes with a house key. Practicing ordinary hospitality in our post-Christian world has been available for sale at our resource center since the beginning of the year. So how in the world does this happen? How does someone go from being a person who wants to malign and tear down the church to somebody who's writing books to build up the church and to edify the church? Huh. Here's how this happens. God uses an ordinary person like you or me, just, just to sh share the word of God with someone that needs to hear it. And then God honors the proclamation of his word, the sharing of his word, and he uses it to prick a heart. And when he does that, people come to repentance. People come to place their faith in Jesus after hearing that word proclaimed. And, and, and if you're listening today and you know there's never been a time where you've turned to God in repentance the way the Ninevites did. I want to encourage you to do that. There is nothing to be gained by delaying that decision. As we think about this passage, I'm reminded of what Jesus told the scribes and the Pharisees. This, this was a group of people that had a lot of exposure to God's word but unlike the Ninevites, they weren't really ready to admit their spiritual poverty and, and to come before the Lord in humility. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is a warning from Jesus to those people. It's a, it's a warning of coming judgment. And we remember that 
that Jonah really had the same message. 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. And, and I want you to know that unless you repent, that one day you will, you will face judgment. But just like the Ninevites, we have an option. We, we, we can either be overturned at that day of judgment, or right now, we can experience a turnaround. The book of Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you've never received that free gift, I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. And so I'm just going to invite us all just to bow our head for a moment. We go to the Lord in prayer. And God, I thank you so much for being a God who gives second chances. Lord, I thank you that you don't give up on us and that you would want to restore us, that you would want to recommission us. And I think I speak for all of us here who are followers of you that uh, when, I, when I just confess that there have been times where I know that you have prompted me, you have desired obedience, and instead of getting that obedience, we've been like Jonah in chapter 1 and we've gone our own way. Lord, I, I, I pray just because of your graciousness and because of your mercy that you would be pleased to let your word come to us a second time and that we would have the great privilege of being used by you to go and to, to fill the purposes for which you created us. And God, I pray for all of us here who are followers of you that you would show us what arise and go should look like in our lives. Would you reveal to us those situations, those environments, the context where you would want us to go and to share your word with someone so that then we could have the privilege of seeing you work and having our faith increased. And Lord, for the person you might be calling overseas, I pray that you would encourage them in that, give them great confidence in that, increase their faith, Give them great joy in that calling and help us as a church to celebrate that with them. And Lord, for the, the person who hasn't repented, I thank you that you're using your word right now to work on their heart, to prick it. And if that's you, I'm just going to invite you to, to say a prayer like this. You can say, God... I know that my sin has separated me from you. And I want to turn from my ways. And I want to turn to you. And I want to embrace Jesus as my Savior. And Jesus, I thank you that you would bear the penalty for my sin. That you would deal with my separation from God. And that you would clothe me in your righteousness. And I want you to know that I want to follow you all the days of my life. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. If you have your little individual communion kit, you can locate that now. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Uh, and.
other contexts, it's called communion. Sometimes you might hear it referred to as the Eucharist. Uh, the Eucharist is a, is a Greek word, and it just means thanksgiving. And that's what this meal is. It's, it's an act of thanksgiving, because when we partake of these elements, we're reminded of all that God has done for us in the death of Jesus Christ. We're reminded of all the benefits. And we're not only reminded of those benefits, Jesus intends for this meal to be a seal of those benefits. He's reassuring us of the validity of, of, of all the promises that he makes to us. I'll tell you that uh, this meal is available to all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, but before we partake of it, I do want to share with you the instructions that the Apostle Paul gives in 1 Corinthians. He writes this, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. and When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So I'm just going to provide a moment now, just some space for us to have some reflection, for us to examine our inner spiritual life and our relationship to Jesus, and just say it's an opportunity where if there's any known sin in your life that you haven't confessed, now would be a good time to do that. If there's someone that you need to forgive, the Lord would want you to do that as well. And then I'll bring us all back together in a moment, and we'll partake of these elements together. Father in heaven, I thank you that as we partake of these elements, that we can celebrate in our hearts and that we can say what Jonah said in Jonah 2.10, that salvation is from the Lord. We thank you for offering us salvation in Jesus Christ. And it's with a really grateful heart that we prepare to receive these elements. In Jesus' name. Amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had broke it, he gave thanks. And he told his disciples, take and eat. This is my body given for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood in the new covenant, which is poured out for many 
for the forgiveness of sins.